I didn't say any more a moment ago because I didn't want to take up time from my preaching this morning. Always got to keep first things first, but I do hope you know how much I love you. And I will say this in addition, there's no group of people I'd rather preach to than the people I preach to every Sunday morning and whenever I get to preach to you. So thank you for being such good preachies, if you want to call it that. Let's turn together in our Bibles to Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Dr. Donald, Donald Gray Barnhouse was one of the greatest pastors, preachers, teachers in America during the 20th century, well-known well-loved, pastored the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for almost 35 years, right up until his death at about 65 years old. Uh, The guy that followed him wasn't too bad either. James Boyce was the pastor that followed him. Uh, That's a fairly good preaching role right there. But Dr. Barnhouse in 1928, this was the year after he came to 10th Presbyterian to be their pastor. In 1928, he was speaking at a conference in Pennsylvania where about 200 young people were present. And one day after one of the sessions, two women came to him in horror because some of the girls, some of the young ladies, some of the ladies in the group were not wearing stockings. And Barnhouse's response, told in his own words, is priceless. Looking them straight in the eye, I said, The Virgin Mary never wore stockings. They gasped and said, She didn't? I answered, In Mary's time, stockings were unknown. So far as we know, stockings were first worn by prostitutes in Italy in the 15th century when the Renaissance began. Later, a lady of the nobility wore stockings at a court ball greatly to the scandal of many people. Before long, however, everyone in the upper classes were wearing stockings. Needless to say, he did not rebuke those who were not wearing stockings at the conference after that. For the past five Sunday mornings, we've been talking about issues of gray from Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Today, we're moving on to the second half of the chapter to talk about dealing with issues of gray. When it gets down to it, what do we do with them? How do we as a church, how do churches as groups handle them? How do we as individuals decide on them? That's what I mean by dealing with issues of gray. Unfortunately, much of Christianity's dealing with issues of gray is summarized by a poem I found this week. Look as I look, do always as I do, then and only then I'll fellowship with you. 
But we can do better than that, can't we? We should do better than that when it comes to dealing with issues of grace. In our text this morning, we're going to find three ways to do it. And what we'll find here is a combination of review stuff and new stuff, sort of a putting it all together, dealing with issues of gray. Follow along with me as I begin to read in verse 13 here in Romans 14. Therefore, let us no longer criticize one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in your brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one, it is unclean. For if your brother is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy that one Christ died for by what you eat. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then... We must pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong for a man to cause stumbling by what he eats. It is a noble thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother stumble. Do you have a conviction? Keep it to yourself before God. If there's a summarizing thought for this entire chapter, could I suggest the sentence I've just read as a summarizing thought? Keep it to yourself before God. The man who does not condemn himself by what he approves is blessed. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from a conviction, and everything that is not from a conviction is sin. The first way that we are to deal with these issues of gray is don't be judgmental. Don't be judgmental. I take this from the first part of verse 13. It says, therefore, let us no longer criticize one another. That word criticize in many of your Bibles may be translated judge because that's what it means. Let us no longer judge one another. And the judging that is spoken of here is a negative kind of judging, a bad kind of judging. It's the the kind of judging that doesn't simply come to a conclusion, but announces a verdict and wants a sentence to be carried out. It's the same kind of judging that Jesus 
was forbidding in Matthew 7, 1 when he said, don't judge so that you won't be judged in the same way. Don't be a self-righteous judge. Don't be a judge who is preoccupied with the faults of others to the exclusion of an awareness of your own faults. It's the kind of judging that we've already seen in this passage, studying it. Going back to verse 3 in the passage, it said there, One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat. That's judging. Looking down on another because they don't have the same freedom in Christ to do some of the things in these issues of gray that you can. And it goes on and says in verse 3, And one who does not eat must not criticize. Again, judge one who does because God has accepted him. So the criticism that's in mind here in verse 13, the judging that's in mind in this verse includes both the weak and the strong. Both those who have freedom in the faith and those who don't have as much freedom. Both those who have a weak conscience that's easily offended and a a stronger conscience that's not offended by things that Scripture doesn't forbid or condone. The reason that this is spoken to us here is for the same reason it's been alluded to earlier in the passage. Having a church with people that have spirits like this, attitudes like this, mouths like this, having a church especially that's filled with people like this kills the unity of the church. And as I've said a number of times over these past weeks, issues of gray are not more important than the unity of Christ's church. So when he says here, let us no longer criticize, it means don't be judgmental. Not simply don't judge, because all judging isn't wrong, but the judgmental type of judging is what he is forbidding here. It said there in verse 13, let us no longer criticize or judge one another. No longer would indicate to us that this is something that had gone on in this church before. It indicates maybe that this is something that people within this church were doing right now. And it's not simply implied as we've read through the the chapter thus far. We know that there was judging that there were people that were judgmental in this church over these issues of gray that, that divided this church. Many of us have been judgmental before, haven't we? When it comes to others in the church. We've criticized, if not out loud, uh, maybe in our homes or maybe in a small circle or or maybe just in our mind. And it's affected the way that we feel about these people Maybe now, some of you, some of us are struggling with a a critical, judgmental spirit. I know that over the last few weeks, a number of you have come to me and have confessed, not in confession like they do it elsewhere, but just, you know, one-on-one talk, no partition board or anything like that, have confessed to me that you have been convicted 
about having a critical spirit, a judgmental spirit, a condemning spirit. And to those of you that have talked with me, haven't I said right back? So do I. That's what's come to the forefront of my mind through this entire chapter. For those of us that have been raised in a very conservative Christian religious home, we have to be aware that this is a great temptation, a potential area of extreme weakness and sin in our life. To be judgmental, condemning, critical to a fault. So our discovery of this, that it exists in us, is a good thing. It's not a good thing to be judgmental, but it's a good thing to know that you're judgmental. And the better thing would be for us to not only realize that and acknowledge it, but seek to kill it. And every time it creeps back up again, to to throw it away again and not become prey and, and subject to it over and over again. The first word there in verse 13 is interesting. It's the word, therefore. I've told you before, whenever you see the word, therefore, you should ask this question. What is it there for? It ties what is said after it to what was said before it. So let's look back to verse 10 and begin to read there. But you... Why do you criticize? Why do you judge your brother or you? Why do you look down on your brother? Why are you judgmental in that way towards him? For we will all stand before the tribunal of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And then from that it says, Therefore, let us no longer criticize One another. The point that's being made is that we aren't to play judge in the lives of other believers' lives. That's redundant, I know. We aren't to be judgmental when it comes to other believers' lives because God is judge. It's His prerogative and His prerogative alone. And He doesn't need our help in doing His job as the judge. Verse 4 in chapter 14 said virtually the same thing. Who are you to criticize to judge another's household slave? So the first way that we deal with these issues of gray is don't be judgmental. It will immediately make the fellowship and the unity of our church much sweeter, much deeper, much stronger. The second way that we find here to deal with these issues of gray is don't be a stumbling block. I alluded to this last week briefly. I told you that along with 
our conscience, the issue of a stumbling block is to be of critical importance to us in determining how we feel personally about an issue of grace. Today I'm going to do more than allude to it. I'm going to give it the full treatment as this text does. We deal with issues of gray by deciding individually that I will not be a stumbling block. I take this from the second part of verse 13 which says, Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or a pitfall in your brother's way. That word decide is translated from the same Greek word that was translated as criticize in the first part of verse 13. How about that? Same two words in the Greek, but but translated because of the context and because of the connotation as two different English words for us. The, The first usage in the first part of verse 13 is negative. So it's translated as criticize or judge. But this example of the word is used in a positive connotation. So it's translated as the word decide. What it means is make a good judgment. Make a good decision. All judgment isn't wrong. Make a good judgment to never put a stumbling block in the way of your brother or sister in Christ. That phrase, stumbling block, refers to something that would have been in the road or in a path or was left in the road or left in the path that would have caused someone that was following along after you to trip or to stumble, to fall. It speaks of things that we may do in our Christian life that we have freedom to do that are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves to do. But those brothers and sisters in Christ who follow along after us on the path, their path of following Christ, they trip up over it. It causes them to stumble and fall. It causes them to sin. The other word that's used in the verse to communicate this same idea is the word pitfall. Or it may be translated obstacle in your Bible. It referred to a trap, a bait trap that was used to catch prey. And the idea here is that we would not want to do anything, even though it may be okay for us, that would lure another believer into sin, into doing something for them that would be a sin. So we have this command, don't be a stumbling block. But in addition to the command, we find three more reasons here not to be stumbling blocks. The first reason is this. We don't want to be a stumbling block because it is unloving to our family. We've already seen family referenced in verse 13 when it says, don't put a stumbling block in your brother's way. So we don't want to be a stumbling block because it's unloving to our family. Verse 14 says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Paul is speaking specifically here about food, but more generally probably about any inanimate thing. 
that in and of themselves, they're not clean or unclean, sinful or not sinful. Uh, They're not going to be what will make you dirty before God by themselves. And he's borrowing from the words of God to Peter in that great scene in the book of Acts where God lowered a a sheet, if you will, full of animals of all kind, clean and unclean under the old covenant and told Peter to eat. And Peter said, I've never eaten anything unclean and I'll never eat anything unclean. And God said to Peter, don't you dare call unclean what I have made clean. In 1 Timothy, a passage that all of us healthy eaters would would love to know if we don't already, it says, whatever you eat is good, it's clean, if you receive it with thanks. So when you're eating that chocolate sundae with nuts this afternoon, you be real thankful for it. The book of Titus says, to the pure, everything is pure. Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew put it this way. Have you ever thought about it? He said, it's not what you put in your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it's unclean. And so while we may have freedom to do a number of these things, and while in this church Paul is saying, I'm absolutely convinced that you could eat whatever you want to be, and you eat and you wouldn't be unclean by doing so, you can't just think about yourself. There are others in the church family that must be thought of. And you better be careful that you're exercising your freedom in Christ is not a stumbling block to a part of your family, another brother or sister in Christ that would be of great damage to them. Because to them, they think it's unclean, they think it's wrong. And for them to do it or to be led to do it would make them commit a sin. Verse 15 says, For if your brother is hurt... By what you eat, the word hurt is very strong there. It could be translated grieved. You remember after Peter denied Jesus and Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And on the third time it said Peter was grieved that Jesus asked him this. I mean, he was deeply hurt that Jesus would have even considered that he didn't love him. The same word is used of the Holy Spirit when we sin, we grieve, we deeply cut, we deeply hurt the Holy Spirit. In the same way, by someone in this church exercising their freedom, for instance, to eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, they could have hurt, deeply hurt, deeply offended another in that church. And by some of the freedoms that we may have individually in Christ that we know it's not wrong to do. In the same way, by our doing of those things in a way that others know about it or in a way that others can see it. We could potentially grieve them deeply. Offend them greatly. For if your brother is hurt by what you eat, 
You are no longer walking according to love. And I would ask you, in the grand scheme of things, what's more important? To exercise your freedom in front of other believers or to love them? Come on now. What do you think is more important? You exercising your personal rights and freedom in Christ? Or you're loving them? We all know what the answer is, don't we? Even if we don't like it. It's to love them. Do you remember what was said in chapter 13, verse 10? Love does no wrong to a neighbor. If love does no wrong to a neighbor, then it will surely do no wrong to a family member. A brother or a sister in Christ. If though by exercising our Christian freedom we are hurting and grieving others in the the body of Christ, others in our local church, we aren't walking according to love. We're not putting them first, we're putting ourselves first. And it says at the end of verse 15, do not destroy that one Christ died for by what you eat. Really, is eating that important? That you could destroy them, hurt them deeply for a moment, for a period of time. Christians, is it too much for God to ask of us to give up some of our freedoms when we consider that Jesus gave up His life? For that one that we may offend or grieve or hurt by exercising our Christian freedom. Let's look at a few passages that go right along with this. Turn to Galatians chapter 5 verse 13. It's not going to be on the screen so you better turn, all right? Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. I'll make you a deal. If you'll turn to these next few, we'll stop after we get through with this letter. Now, you have no idea how much more is in this letter, this letter A. I didn't mean the letter to Romans. (laughs) Galatians 5.13 For you were called to be free brothers. And don't we rejoice in that, the freedom that we have in Jesus? We do, it's a wonderful thing. Most of you don't have to walk around feeling nearly as guilty as you feel all the time. If we really believe that Jesus has paid for those sins in full, then we'll have freedom. Real liberty. For you were called to be free brothers. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Or as an occasion for the flesh to turn your freedom into something that in the end could be considered sinful. Don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but... Serve one another through love. You see what's more important than our freedom? Loving one another. Serving each other in love. Putting the needs of others before our own. 
Verse 14 says, For the entire law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. And again, I would add, if we're to love our neighbor as ourself, and that includes everyone, surely we're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 15 says, But if you, divide, if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. And that's what happens in a lot of local congregations. They can't win for trying to kill each other. Flip back to Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. Probably the preeminent passage in the Bible, or at least the most well-known passage in the Bible on the subject of stumbling blocks. And the occasion for it was that well-known passage in the Bible that records Jesus bringing the children unto himself against the objections of the disciples. Jesus does love the little children. And believer, he loves you because you're his little child. Verse 6 says, But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, and surely he includes children there, but figuratively, symbolically, by these literal little children, he, he's speaking of all of his little children, those that are young in the faith or younger in the faith. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, you don't have to be a, a Bible scholar to know that whatever that means, it ain't good. Whether it's literal or not, it's not good when Jesus said, if you do this, you'd be better off. Listen now, you'd be better off having a big rock hung around your neck and thrown off the river bridge. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks or offenses. For stumbling blocks or offenses must come. But woe to the man by whom the offense, the stumbling block, comes. If your hand or your foot causes your downfall, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye rather than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. Whatever causes sin needs to be radically dealt with is the point. Especially sin that causes sin in the lives of others. See that you don't look down on one of these little ones because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save the lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray... Won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, I assure you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that didn't go astray. It doesn't mean he loves that one more than the 99. It's just that they were never lost. But one had been and it's been found. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And the idea 
is that our stumbling blocks could potentially cause them to do just that. Now flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Two passages in this first letter to the church at Corinth. And then we'll be making our way to the end. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. It says here about eating food offered to idols, which was a big issue in the church at Rome, this this letter that we're studying. About eating food offered to idols then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, we know that there is one God, the Father, All things are from Him, and we exist for Him, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through Him, and we exist through Him. Here's an important point. However, not everyone has this knowledge. You get what he's saying? When it comes to the debate of then, what you can eat and what you can't, The people that really knew understood that idols were nothing. So meat that had been sacrificed to an idol had been sacrificed to nothing. It wasn't hurting anyone for you to buy that meat when it cost cost much less because in the end it had been sacrificed to something that wasn't even real. But not everybody in that church had that knowledge. To them, it was something very real and troublesome. And he goes on and says here, in fact, some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat a food offered to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. You see, as I've said over and over again these last few weeks, we are products of our own experience. And there were those within that church who had just been saved from awful idolatry. And for them, eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol was a horrible, tremendous reminder of what they used to be. And those who had that greater knowledge should not offend them, grieve them by exercising their Christian liberty, at least in a way that they would be aware of. Verse 8 says, Food will not make us acceptable to God. We are not inferior if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has this knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, Won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? And if he did and he thought it was wrong, it'd be a sin for him, right? Then the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died, is ruined, is led into sin by your knowledge and you're exercising your freedom. Now when you sin like this against the the brothers and wound their weak conscience, warning, strong language, You are sinning against Christ. Now we may not consider our brothers and sisters in the church to be a 
utmost importance, but uh, Jesus sure is. And because they belong to him, they are too. Now when you sin like this against the brothers and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to fall, I will never eat meat again so that I won't cause my brother to fall. Every time I read that verse, I think about a man when I was a little boy, I was in church with him. This was before my dad was a pastor even in the church that my dad was ordained as a pastor. And I didn't know the phrase soul winner, but I knew that Mr. Robert was a man that told people about Jesus everywhere he went. And on one of those Monday night visitations, he went to a home and he was sharing with the occupant of that home about Jesus and how to be saved. And as he was doing it, his pouch of red man chewing tobacco was sticking out his pocket. And the occupant of that home said, how in the world can you tell me about Jesus when you chew that nasty stuff? And he took that out of his pocket and he threw it down. If he, and he said, if, if this is what is keeping you from Jesus, I'll never touch it again. And to everyone's knowledge, he never did. First Corinthians 9, I said I got one more in, in this first letter to Corinth. Look at verse 19. Paul says, although I am a free man and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. And earlier in chapter 9, Paul had said it was for this reason that he had not taken a wife, which was a right, and he would not take a salary from the church at Corinth, which was his right. Now, that's love right there, and I just want to confess to you, I don't love you that much. I'm not giving up Cheryl, and I'm not giving up the salary. I'd preach for free, but the pastoring I'm going to have to be paid for, all right? <laughs> Look at what he said in verse 12. If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? However, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. As I wrap it up, let me share with you some thoughts from some leading Christians down through the ages. Real quick. Martin Luther said about this, A Christian is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. But in the very next sentence, he wrote, A Christian is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. John MacArthur has written, Although we are permitted to enjoy freedom, we are not commanded to do so. We are not obligated to exercise every freedom we have in Christ. In fact, the greater our love and spiritual maturity, the less important those freedoms will be to us. And the more willing we will be to relinquish them for the sake of best serving the Lord and others, especially other believers. Leon Morris says, It is not enough for a Christian that a certain course is not wrong. He must also consider its effect on other people, specifically on his brother, one bound to him by close ties. 
and Robert Mounts has said, while freedom is a right, it is not a guide for conduct. Love serves that purpose. Rights are to be laid aside in the interest of love. That principle was firmly established by the Incarnation. And he references Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 through 11 that says, Jesus, though being God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or held on to or used for his own advantage. He laid that aside and he took on the form of a slave, of a man even to the point of dying on a cross. Don't be a stumbling block because it's unloving to our families. We didn't finish this morning, but we made it far enough to say this. When it comes to dealing with these issues of gray, we're not to be judgmental. And we're not to be a stumbling block. So how are you dealing with these issues of gray in light of those two things? How are we dealing with them? Think about that. And I'd say respond to it, but you've already been responding to it. Keep responding to it, okay? Let's keep responding to it. How are you dealing with issues of black and white? Sometimes not so good, right? We do things that we know are wrong. We have things that we know to be right that we don't do. Christian, how are you doing with those? If not so well, then remember Jesus and what he's done for you and how he saved you from even those sins. And love him more. And live for him because you can. In particular, how are you dealing with the gospel? If you have never turned from your sins to Jesus in faith, if you aren't, pray that God would help you to do just that and look to Jesus and trust on Him to be saved and He will save you. He will forgive you. He will give you eternal life. He'll make you right with God.